It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning. Welcome to Fed Talk. I'm Julie Perkins. Um, today, we've got a very exciting show. I'm joined in the studio by Commissioner Mark Guerin. He's the Vice Chair for National and Public Service on the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Uh, we're going to be talking about that commission and um, the topics of their, their agenda of increasing participation by Americans in the military, national, and in public service. We're also joined on the phone by Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, and that partnership is certainly um, involved in increasing and improving policies on um, participation in uh, federal government uh, and, uh, and getting more uh, more. I would say efficient government and uh, more access to uh, uh, applicants and potential candidates for the government. Um, this week, we're going to be diving into what the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service is and learning about the interim report that they just produced this week. Fed um, Talk is brought to you by Long Term Care Partners. LLC, Long-Term Care Partners, administers the Office of Personnel Management, sponsored federal long-term care insurance program. All right. So I'm going to first start with the commissioner. Um, If you could just, I'll tell you, I'm looking at his bio, actually, both of our guest bios, and um, I could spend the whole hour um, telling you about all their um, um, uh, amazing uh, accomplishments and um, jobs that they've had over the years. But, um, Mark, why don't you uh, give a, a brief, brief background and how you got to be a commissioner on this. Right. <clears throat> well, thank you, Julie, for the chance to be here. And I'm thrilled to be on with Max Steyer, who is a real leader in this space. And the mm-hmm. Partnership for Public Service is just a extraordinary effort here. Um I come to this position as as vice chair from professional experiences here in the federal government, White House staff, and as former director of the Peace Corps, uh, but then for 18 years as a college president, having worked with young Americans and now in my current role at the Harvard Kennedy School as director of the Institute of Politics. So my experience is shaped by working with young Americans for the better part of uh, the past 20 years or so, seeing them at work at the Peace Corps chairing the board of the Corporation for National Community Service, which runs AmeriCorps and VISTA and Senior Corps. And um, this commission is really the brilliant design of uh, Senators John McCain and Jack Reed, who in 2017, when the debate was centered in and around the selective service system and the particular issue of requiring women to register, uh, they had, I think, the very good idea to form this bipartisan commission, but really extended it. It's a long title and a rather clunky title, <laughs> but a very significant one, right? Military, right. national, and public service. And the first time really in our nation's history, these three forms of service are united into this commission with our charge to come back to the Congress and the president uh, next year in March of 2020 with our recommendations. So it's a unique commission. There are 11 commissioners and appointed by the leadership of the House and Senate and the president. So we bring our individual perspectives professionally and personally. We bring the appointments through a bipartisan heritage of the of the Congress and the president, in this case, President Obama, for when it was formed. Um, and we have been very hard at work over the past year 
to listen to the American people, to listen to experts like Max and his colleagues and others uh, who are engaged in this topics, related topics of military, national, and public service. So over the arc of this year, we've had the very good fortune of going out to nine states and to, or 15 states, rather, and 24 cities, all of the census districts uh, taking uh, the pulse of America through hearings and uh, written reports that are brought to us through our website and through public comments to really get the perspective of the American people. We see that as our charge from the Congress so that when we report back with our recommendations in a year or so, we will have faithfully attended to uh, listening to the American public, listening to experts, listening to the military, national, and public servants in this country. Uh, so it's been an enormous privilege uh, to see that. And there's both uh, very encouraging things to report on in our interim report and very concerning things that I think the nation has to um, take stock of and to reflect on. Hmm. And Max, uh, Max is uh, with us on the phone. And um, why don't you... Uh, again, uh, I could go on and on about your background. You've um, managed to serve in all three branches of the government, which is pretty impressive. Um, and, of course, the Partnership for Public Service um, does a wonderful job of trying to better um, both the government um, operationally but also access to um candidates and um, resources that um, perhaps um, there's these barriers of, of um, bureaucracy uh, that prevent us from um, making the government the best it can be. So welcome, Max. You want to you um, do a brief of who you are and, and what the partnership is all about? And, and thank you very much, Julie, for hosting this conversation. It's a true pleasure and honor to, uh, uh, to take part in any conversation with Mark, who is a phenomenal public servant and thinker and, and advocate for um, a better country. So uh, it's great to, to participate here. Uh, you generously described uh, a, a partnership, both of you. I mean, we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that is focused on making our government work better. It's uh, important, I think, especially right now when we've got this government shutdown for the American public to really understand what their government is. And it's um, truly our most important tool for addressing our critical problems as a nation. It's a fundamental element of our democracy. And at the end of the day, it's the people that are in it that are most important. And we need to have uh, great talent in order to be able to thrive as a nation. And uh, right now, even before the shutdown, we had fewer than 6% of the federal workforce under the age of 30, you know, five times as many people over the age of 60 as under the age of 30 in IT. And the shutdown is not going to make any of this better. It's going to chase away current talent. It's literally shut down the processes of hiring new people in those agencies that have not gotten their appropriation. And it's not obviously making a good impression on the critical talent that we need to come in. Um, so I really applaud the work that the National Commission uh, has done on this. Uh, I think this is exactly what we need. Um, our government is a phenomenal institution that has built itself up over time, but not been refreshed in the way to meet new challenge. So it's a bluntly a legacy institution that hasn't kept up with the world around it. This kind of effort uh, as I understand it, is really about how we can actually do better, um, modernize our government, make sure we give outlets uh, for uh, very talented people to contribute in ways that they want to. And I'm excited both by what the commission has already found and by the work that they will do over the course of the next year. Oh, goodness. Um, we are up to our first break. I'm getting uh, I'm getting the signal from Andrew. So... Um, You've been listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 AM, and um, we'll basically, I guess, continue our discussion and really get into it after this break and a word from our sponsor. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. And today we are enjoying a discussion about the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. And um, before we started, um, I was talking to Mark, and he thought it was very smart um, for the senators to not just focus on the military, but bring in the National and Public Service so that there is more of a community involvement. Everyone sort of has a a piece in the action and you might um, pay more attention to the commission as a result. It's not just focused on issues in the military um, in terms of recruitment um, and uh, the geographic, um, I don't want to say isolation, but the fact that 70% now come from the South and the West that go into the military. Um, so you're getting, um, it's it, it's less of a, a broad spectrum of people in the military. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, uh, sticking points, I suppose, um, was the Selective Service um, System, which is a very small federal agency that um, I suppose the men that are listening to are familiar with because you have to register with them in case the draft ever comes back. And if you don't register with them, um, there's some severe ramifications. Um, Some people don't do it purposely, don't register. Um, I I know a case of someone who came to my law firm where it, it just... Went to private school, um, didn't take out student loans, and um, was getting recruited for a job in the federal government. And this came up that he had never registered, and he um, could not get the job. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> it's a kind of an under-the-radar requirement for the men uh, uh, in this country to make sure that they comply with the law. And I think because of a lack of a draft, it's really not on anyone's forefront. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's the thought that myself and probably a lot of other people share is, like, why are not the women uh, right. registering? Um, because I imagine if we needed the draft to come back up, we've got a serious war going on. Um, because, um, you know, you hear the military generals talk and they don't want a draft. Um, so it, I, I would imagine some sort of major ground invasion or something. I don't right. know. I'm trying to imagine why you would, like, have to call up uh, all these people, but it would have to be a, a, a pretty catastrophic um, scenario and why you wouldn't want able-bodied women um, standing who are already in combat um, so is that one of the... It is, Julie, and, and I think you've tapped into one of the findings that we certainly have observed over the course of the past year is while some Americans are aware of the details of the selective service system and the implications of registration, like your colleague, many Americans are not. Yeah. And that is, it is, you're right, we have not had a draft in this country since 1973. There is the all-volunteer military that we have. So one consequence of this is this um, knowledge base and the awareness that we have of it. Um, You're right. The requirement currently is for all 18-year-old men to register with the Selective Service um, to serve the nation potentially if there was a draft, which does not exist. That would have to be approved by the president and Congress, but it gets conflated in a lot of people's understanding, I think. Um, I think some... Americans are surprised that women are currently not required uh, to um, register or not permitted 
to register at this point for selective service. Um, so we have these questions. A, the question of whether we should have a selective service in the United States in 2019 and beyond. Um, and then B, the question of, of women uh, being required to register. So we are carefully considering the issue, actively seeking input on this. And as you can imagine, uh, people have a, a spectrum of views on both of those questions, uh, both in the first instance, the importance or not of the selective service itself as an independent agency, and secondly, the requirement for women. But I think your, all, your point is also well taken that one thing that we really have seen, and indeed the privilege of, of serving on this commission, is the extraordinary wellspring of interest in giving back to the, our country that exists in our travels from big cities to small towns to faith communities to the business sector to not-for-profits, one is struck, as de Tocqueville observed centuries <laughs> ago, that this is an extraordinary nation of joiners. So that is the good news that we uh, are able to report based upon our, our travels and input that we've received. You see it in the young people who raise their hand to serve in the military, to raise their hand to serve in some of the most desperate places on the planet in the Peace Corps to serve our own country through AmeriCorps or VISTA. I think what is also the case that we've sadly observed as well is there's not awareness about ways that people can serve. It is not accessible to enough young Americans. It is not resourced in a way that one might imagine that would honor the level of commitment that we have. So it is a classic good news and concerning news that I think Americans uh, we'll be able to see both preliminarily with this interim report that we just released on Monday uh, to engage with us over the course of the next year so that when our recommendations come forth, they will be able to speak to really the coherence of what Senators McCain and Reid uh, first designed in the architecture of this commission for military, national, and public service, people who serve in important ways. And then finally, I would say, just speaking as one commissioner, coming to Washington uh, on Wednesday to release our report at the museum on a day when 800,000 Americans mm -hmm. are furloughed or working without pay. When we're talking about public service, we're talking about important ways where people can, can serve in military, national, and public service. Um, the irony, I don't think, was lost on any of us. The, the opportunities uh, that exist in the signal that this may send to prospective generations, Max outlined the demographics of the changing workforce uh, that exists in our country, particularly in the federal workforce. So we are attentive to that and listening to that. And, and um, hopefully this, this current uh, shutdown will conclude sooner rather than later, but our report will have to speak to the broader issues of, of how do we um, build the awareness uh, for these various streams of service how do we provide the access to uh, truly have an inclusive uh, core of federal workforce, those in the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps, and certainly in the military? Yeah, I uh, I think the shutdown. Um, I in part I'm heartened by the community. Uh, you know, um, Chef. Uh, Chef Andres and others, uh, you know, the food banks that were sprung up. Um, but that also shows how uh, a lot of these public servants, um, you know, they don't work for um, big bucks, you know. Right. Part of, the, part, of the, part of it is a sense of national duty, and, um, and they, they feel they're they're doing something for their country. Uh, so uh, living week to week, paycheck to paycheck, is part of um, being a federal worker for, for many people. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my neighborhood here in the district, I've got um, spouses. Um, both uh, were, They're both furloughed mm -hmm. um, and um, because government... Employees meet at work and they get married, and uh, you know, and now no one in their house has an income. So I would imagine, um, Max, that you uh, and the partnership are going to have to um, come up with uh, 
a big PR strategy to bring people back to uh, wanting to join the federal government. This is a very scary time for for and and people see the fear on these um, folks' faces as they're lining up um, to get food to feed their families and um, and hoping not to lose their homes um, or their apartments. Uh, I don't know what the solution is other than maybe Senator Warner um, who suggested that if they, uh-huh. <laughs> that the only people that don't get paid are Congress and, and people in the White House. If, if Right. I, I, I thought that was a brilliant uh, idea. Right. <laughs> we actually did an op-ed uh, suggesting that the week before, three things. One, that there really isn't any reason why in the shutdown context that the default shouldn't be that federal employees get paid. You know, the fact of the matter is they're vital. They need the paycheck, as you've already said. And if they're being required to work or if they're being required to stay at home, they should not not just have to uh, wait for their pay. Why not get it when they actually need it? Mm -hmm. The second point you made is really a pay for performance point, which is it really is the Congress and the president's responsibility to keep the government open and to get appropriations through. And they shouldn't be paid if they're not. And the third, which has also been picked up with Senator Warner, is that the default doesn't need to be a shutdown. It can be a continuing resolution. And, you know, this is obviously a very important backdrop. If there's any silver lining in it, by no means uh, makes up for the incredible damage being done to federal workers, to contractors, state and localities, to the American public. I mean, just to be very direct and blunt about this, no foreign adversary could shut down our government. and We've done this to ourselves. It is nuts. Uh, but the the one silver lining that I'm seeing is that the American public is being introduced to their public servants, not just here in D.C., but across the country. Eighty-five percent of the federal workforce lives and works outside the D.C. metro area. To Mark's point, you know, you have two million uh, federal civil servants or 16 million uh, public servants more generally. Um, it's real important for the public to understand, uh, you know, what they're getting from their from their tax dollar and from their public servants. And they're getting a civics education in a way that, uh, we've not had maybe ever. Um, I'm hoping, and I think, I think that's this right. is something. Yeah, the work of the commission can actually reinforce that. I mean, I do think that this commission could not be better timed in terms of the work that it is doing. And I think it's fundamental what Mark said earlier that the connection point between the military, uh, the public service, and national service is one we should all understand. And you know, an example of that is that the largest civilian piece of the federal workforce actually works at DOD. And in fact, 70% of the federal workforce is focused on security. So um, this is all important for the public to understand so that they can um, really appreciate, support, and join uh, the the service opportunities that exist that will be of interest to them. And I, I think that's right. And it's I think it is giving us a window, as you rightly observed, Max. It's, a, I guess, a silver lining. But it is... It is putting a uh, real spotlight on an understanding, as you say, a civics lesson um, on the federal workforce. I mean, as we've been speaking, the news is reporting that the FAA has halted flights into New York's LaGuardia Airport because of uh, a shortage of air traffic control staff. So I think that's one example where people are getting a sense of what government means, what public service means, and hopefully... When our report comes forward, we'll be able to observe that a lot of the recommendations that have, uh, are coming forth to us, that public service personnel practices need an overhaul uh, for our civil society. It is too hard to access the federal government workforce. It is, it is too obtuse in its, its mm-hmm. organization. And mm-hmm. so there needs to be a real contemporized um, approach, it seems to me, for for based on what we're hearing, for those who really want to serve the public good and work in, in, in uh, public service. But the practices uh, and the procedures uh, serve to frustrate civil servants. And that's what we've been hearing. And that's um, there's the process piece. And then I think, again, perhaps a silver lining is the unfortunate characterization and portrayal and regrettably politicization of public service and public servants mm-hmm. uh, in the media by government officials. And hopefully this will be an opportunity for us to, to step back from the brink of that kind of discourse and really appreciate what is happening in our nation, appreciate the sacrifice, the industry, when 
talented people have many choices uh, that we can um, allow those Americans who want to serve in this way to continue to do so. Yeah, I think the FBI uh, Association came out and explained all the risk to our security because they, they've lost um, uh, informants because they couldn't pay them um, and they can't get subpoenas. Um, they can't, I mean, so criminal investigation and, and anti-terrorism investigations are are at a standstill. Um, food is not being inspected. I had, um, uh, I got poisoned by shellfish over the weekend um, while visiting my niece in Seattle. And I not, I know correlation is not causation. I'm not saying it's because the FDA is shut down and all the inspectors are, uh, there's a shortage. But I've never been sick um, with shellfish before. And um, I wouldn't want to wish that uh, experience on my worst enemy. Well, maybe I'm my worst enemy, but um, it's a hor- horrific experience. And I um, am much more appreciative of the food inspectors out there. And then when you hear that the meat inspectors are calling in sick, um, I, I I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I do think this is a very important civic lesson that people are realizing um, the the importance of these public servants. Um, oh, looks like it is time for another break, and we'll continue our discussion after this uh, break. And a word from our sponsor, you've been listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Um, before the break, we were talking about how we're all um, having a uh, unfortunate but fortunate civics lesson on the importance of um, our public servants and those that um, you know, sacrifice salary, um, some people get moved around a lot. Um, you know, they do a lot of um, uh, sacrificing for the public good, um, and not just in the military, but in our national and public service. And um, hopefully one positive thing out of this shutdown um, may take years for people to um, <laughs> want to be a federal employee, but... Um, I think the rest of us are being reminded how um, important it all is. Um, And one thing that I've heard a couple of times we've raised is access, access to those jobs, knowing um, what type of jobs that maybe you can uh, qualify for and, and serve our country for. So, uh, is the commission going to deal with? I, I know that Max's group and other groups have, but Max's uh, the Partnership for Public Service has been, you know, in the forefront um, on trying to fix how how the barriers to getting a government job um, and finding out <clears throat> really what is out there. I think the USA Jobs website I don't think has changed in ten fifteen years, and I I don't find it all that. Um, user-friendly. Sorry, whoever created it. 
Um, but um, is that going to be one of the one of the issues that the commission's going to be looking into? Absolutely. You really can't really touch any kind of exploration of public service issues without hearing and observing from those currently in the workforce or those who want to be that the recruiting and hiring practice practices are really out of touch with the realities of modern uh, contemporary workforce. And significantly, as again, as Max has pointed out, they're insufficient to meet future personnel needs given the looming demographic change. So I think what we're hearing is that civil servants are frustrated by that poor image and misperceptions that exist. That's concerning. Your point, Julie, is right that the federal hiring process is, is too slow and that USA Jobs does not meet uh, people's needs of accessing uh, the federal workforce and young people, therefore, are not well represented in, in, in this form of public service. So we need, given the looming challenges, both foreign and domestic, that this country has into the 21st century, our government needs to recruit and train and retain a high-quality workforce. And that will require the kind of changes that um, and recommendations that we'll be coming forward with, because I think that's what we're hearing with great consistency and, and great, um, I think, perceptive comments. And going back to your first point, back to the civic education, that is another thread of what we've been hearing in our work in terms of uh, civic knowledge, which is certainly critical to our democracy. We will hopefully get through this shutdown and these silver linings that we've been talking about hopefully will have been observed as indeed silver linings. But it will not mitigate the imperative that we have been hearing for civic education, a high-quality civic education that over decades has been crowded out uh, in, in, in K-12 education for understandable reasons of the importance of STEM and the importance of other fields of, of inquiry. But there is no question. Studies and re researchers have, have, have found that uh, a significant civic education improves our civic life in notable ways for active and meaningful uh, citizenship. It increases voter participation. It reduces dropout rates. And it really encourages constructive community engagement. But that's what our nation, it would seem, uh, could look forward to. Again, the good news is we have this extraordinary and dazzling generation coming forth, very um, sophisticated in technology, very uh, broadly thinking of an inclusive society, very much wanting to make a difference. How we provide access to these opportunities across military, national, and public service, how we resource them to, uh, so that we can recruit and retain them, in this case in the federal workforce, but also in the military and public service, is critical. So we are hearing with great consistency around the country that young people are not receiving the kind of civic education that you want, and it is contributing to the kind of civic health that we have. And, and, and that starts in a K-12 environment. That there's lots of great... Uh, state profiles of civic uh, education that is it is occurring in this country. And we had a very significant session yesterday with those uh, experts here in Washington who are working on this on this important issue. This is certainly a bipartisan issue. This is something that affects our our civic life and uh, civil society. So there are threads of both encouragement and concern. And our hope is through the recommendations that we will offer next March, uh, that we will trace both of those with our journey, both to expose to the American public the, of what is happening around the country that they should be excited about, but things that, that should, they should be concerned about. When I was director of the Peace Corps, we received 10,000 applications uh, of Americans, mainly young Americans, who want to serve as Peace Corps volunteers. And due to the support and the budget of the Peace Corps, we were able to accept 3,500 to go to serve. Now, I don't know that every one of those 6,500 applicants were tan fit and ready to be a Peace Corps volunteer, mm -hmm. but I think the American public should understand that we are saying no mm -hmm. to thousands of Americans in this one small example who want to serve in the most desperate places on the planet to go in peace and friendship 
to represent the United States and to come back as global citizens in this increasingly multicultural society and global economy that we have in the United States, really providing a domestic dividend to our country. Right. So I see this as de Tocqueville saw, if you will, that it's it's a great country. People doing amazing things, people doing extraordinary things in federal service, in the military, and in public service. Um, but how do we organize ourselves and catalyze the interests that's there, build the awareness uh, that that more Americans need to understand the opportunities for service that exist? Uh, and then how do we support them? Yeah, Max, uh, you threw out a, a stat earlier about the young, and I I didn't um, note it down. Can you can you remind us uh, about yes, well, how, how few? Unfortunately, yeah, there, there there are lots of bad stats here. So so I think the most um, uh, easily digestible as being problematic is that if you look at the full federal government workforce, you have less than than six percent of those federal workers being under the age of 30. Wow. And one might have some argument whether that's the, you know, that, that that's the right cutoff for defining young. I don't know. I'm way past that. And <laughs> have been for Me a while. too. <laughs> um, but, but, it, but the basic point here is that we don't have generational diversity in our, in our government. And, you know, the places where that is most obviously problematic are things like in IT, where there mm-hmm. are five times as many people over the age of 60 as under the age of 30. Um, but it's a problem, you know, writ large. And, you know, I think Mark is right to focus on some very basic uh, hiring processes that are broken. And as you note, this is something we've been focused on for a while. But there's also something, in my view, that is even more fundamental, and it really is a leadership deficit. And in general, you know, there are exceptions and some exceptional leaders, but many political leaders, whether they are in the executive branch or Congress, Focus on the policy and crisis management, if forced to, but not on the health of the organizations that they are, in fact, responsible for. And one of those core health um, dimensions is going to be the talent and getting you know, great new talent in. And so um, I think that is really the source point of the problem here. We do need to change processes, but even more fundamentally, we need to change the expectations of the leaders that that is their job to... Uh, create healthier um, public sector organizations over time. And there are a lot of symptoms, including the the, uh, lack of young people that are a result of, I think, their neglect. Uh, But I cannot say enough about the importance of what the commission is doing. I think it is uh, vital to address these issues. Um, Absolutely is important for talented Americans who want to serve. And absolutely it's important for the health of our country. Yes. to have these opportunities. And, and um, whether you want to serve or not, you should still be committed to this issue because it is important for the health of all of us. Yes, my um, my millennial uh, niece um, is starting a job in early February with Conservation Corps. I have no idea how she found this job, um, but she managed to track it down and... Um, I don't know how she's going to live on the stipend, um, but <laughs> but she's not concerned about that. Um, she wants to help um, restore lands and um, make America better um, uh, environmentally. Um, and, you know, she was able to kind of figure out how to go about doing that. She doesn't know what will happen when the time period. I think it's a year commitment is up. Um, but most people um, wouldn't know. Like I was like, what is Conservation Corps? And she's like, well, it's a subset of, you know, and she goes on and on and on. But most people don't have um, uh, the time or um, the ability to to kind of track down these avenues where they could um, pursue their passions and also serve the country. And I think that that is something that um, needs to be addressed. And, and it sounds like the commission is certainly doing that. It is. It is <clears throat> certainly, again, back to the McCain-Reed um, architecture here for military, national, and public service. And there are commonalities of the barriers to service. 
across each one of those streams of service, and one of them, a very big one, uh, in this case, in terms of, of the opportunities like your niece is having, is awareness. Uh, some have said that uh, national service is America's best-kept secret. Right? Yes. Because there's, there's extraordinary Americans mm-hmm. doing extraordinary things each and every day in this nation. So that should make us feel good as a country. Right. But we also need to get our head around the fact that we're saying no to thousands of Americans who want to do it as well. Right. How do we feel about that? Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, so those are the attendant issues. But our hope is with drawing this um, uh, commission report and drawing from the expertise of Max and others here in Washington and around the country, we can unite the broader argument that at this time when our country is so divided, we see it quite visibly here in Washington, uh, but not just in a political context. What could bind us as a nation? What could unite us? And I think the opportunities for the realization, it is not for everyone at every stage of their life, but could we have an expectation of service in this country? That is one of the, our charges. How do we enhance an ethos of service in our nation? Some nations have a mandatory service, but there are loads of approaches that we're thinking through, but certainly an expectation of service that as we um, work to to bridge the divides, we know that service, as I articulated earlier, leads to many other, I think, beneficial aspects for active citizenship. But it also has this sort of coherence in, for, for uniting the kind of divides that vex us politically, that vex us in community building, in interpersonal relationships, and across the spectrum of differences in our nation, regional, economic, race, gender, class, all the the metrics that we would look to, service really can provide um, the possibility uh, for this nation realizing its very best self, which is there, but has to be cultivated, has to be broadened through the awareness and support. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop here and um, take our last break and hear from our sponsor. And when we return, we'll wrap up our um, discussion that I found very fascinating today. And you've been listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, and we're entering our last segment of the show, and we've been talking about the commission and um, and its purpose, its objectives, and its recent interim report. Um, what I have found, um, gratif- uh, I guess, calming in, in, this, in this era of a of a shutdown of uh, uh, going on, what, 34 days, um, is um, the optimism that um, Mark has shared with us um, going out outside of D.C. and um, outside of the major cities and meeting Americans that want to serve in some form or capacity, want to better uh, their communities, large and small, um, um, further the goals of the United States, uh, I, the ideals, um, which is, you know, what the what we all would hope. Um, you know, the public servant, for the most part, um, aren't there just because of a job. They're there because they wanted to serve their government uh, and their country in a certain way. Um, Max's statistics for... <laughs> Are going to keep me up at night because um, <laughs> I'm I'm a Generation Xer, so um, so I got to rely on these millennials to take care of me, uh, and um, <laughs> so hopefully um, I I want them to join um, the government more and more. I also think that they are innovative. Um, they grew up 
uh, just their mind works differently and they're much more imaginative than I ever was. Uh, I think um, there, maybe it's their exposure to different ideas, but it would be nice to have uh, more of the millennials and I guess the generation Z that's coming up behind them um, in uh, working for the government in some form of capacity. So I hope that the commission and the partnership uh, for public service figure this out for us um, and and uh, figure out how to bring the young into these agencies. And, and I think you're right. I think, um, Mark, when you said that um, the leaders of agencies are, are, are just basically doing their mission, uh, uh, what, what is their mission goals and reactive in, in some cases, and not looking at the health of um, and how to grow with the young um, and that sort of leadership mindset leads to um, perhaps be retooled. Right. And it, it, we're really imagining, I would suspect, is, is, you know, change will not come quickly in any one of these areas. But over time, our nation has seen extraordinary progress. Great ideas, big ideas in public policy from uh, have, have required that kind of time and purposeful execution of it. But if you vision a country where uh, a norm could be established for every American to, to realize their sense of citizenship uh, or at least an expectation of giving back to their nation, I like how Martin Luther King Day has become a service day. Right. And that was adopted pretty quickly by the American people. Right. No, and then Senator Harris Wofford, who we sadly lost uh, just this past weekend, who was just a champion for service from the early days of the Peace Corps uh, to running the Corporation for National and Community Service and in his own public service in the Senate and state government. Uh, really advance that legislation with the King family where it wisely is a, a day on and a day off rather than a day off. And I, I think that sense of of giving back, um, I'm privileged to, to to work at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and that, that ethos of ask not what your country can do threaded a generation. And we need to uh, reimagine that for the 21st century and what are the elements of that. The good news, as I said, is there are different and varied ways where people can do that in military, national, and public service. Um, and our charge, I think, is well-placed to, to come back. On the selective service question, and then broadly, how do you broaden and deepen an ethos of service? Right, to the point where, um, I don't want to say you're shunned, but it's 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 not considered okay not to have uh, a part of your life where you give back, right? Uh, where you where you have a service, where you have some sort of volunteer. It, I don't want to say it's mandatory volunteer, but you could you could change society's perceptions. Wouldn't uh, it be nice that it's one is not an outlier? Yes. If you're doing that, that yes. your niece would feel affirmed that that was uh, not a unique experience. That there are other in her cohort and generation that across the different opportunities for service, and it's that kind of ethos that I think has real possibility for our country because the foundational aspects of it are very much present. Hmm. Max, do you have any uh, final thoughts? We've got a few minutes left. and uh-huh. so uh, I just say thank you. I, I thank you for, for hosting this conversation and for Mark, uh, your, your really important work. I look forward to uh, seeing the, the final product next year. And I appreciate the, you know, the, the, the focus on the practical, on, on what can actually be done. Um, I do think we haven't talked a whole lot about the military. I do think that having that as part of this conversation is so fundamental. And interestingly, obviously, it's one of the very few institutions that continues to engender a great deal of respect uh, in this country. And um, it's one where uh, the service ethos is very strong, and there's a lot to learn from it, um, in my view, uh, some of the best leaders we've had on the civilian side of government have been former military folk who come to their positions with a recognition that, you know, talent is is the fundamental asset. 
So anyway, my, my final word would be just thank you. Well, and just to build on that, we're looking forward to our agenda where we're going to have 14 hearings across seven days for the first half of 2019 here in Washington in February at American University. And we'll be opening up RSVPs if people want to register for that on February 21st. And then going to Texas and New York State and then coming back in May where we'll be at the Partnership uh, for Public Service here for two hearings on public service and on military service. So the public will have an opportunity and, and the commission will have uh, the privilege of receiving expert testimony on key topics uh, within our, our mandate. And then members of the public will also have the opportunity to provide comments. So we we welcome that. We welcome it on our website. Uh, we welcome it in terms of all the kind of streams of our, our social media that exists uh, in Inspired Search to serve.gov in the it's to the the numeral inspire to serve.gov um, but particularly your listeners who are attuned to the federal news attuned to these issues could provide real good advice to us and comments and we would welcome that okay excellent and um i i, I agree we didn't uh, we we were focused on public and national touch briefly on military and um it is concerning. It's becoming more of a, a, a geographic uh, um, recruiting. Um, uh, my brother was career before he retired, and I have to say he's younger than me and he's retired, but I'm not bitter about that at all. Um, but he certainly sacrificed quite a bit in those uh, 25 years that he served. Um, but he did, he made point he'd come up to dc visit with family make a point how different it is down in uh, the southern states and um down in texas and and there was a, a greater uh, understanding and appreciation because there's more involvement in that service so i certainly hope that um once you uh, complete the study we can all come back absolutely i mean we're already saying that Military service is a responsibility borne by few, and we, we, we see that, and, and that creates a military-civilian divide regionally and otherwise. And so we want to make sure that all Americans have the kind of interactions with the impressive people in the military and community, uh, are aware of the range of both career and professional opportunities uh, that exist. Um, it's again gets to that awareness point. It is. It's an absolute awareness. Um, and unfortunately, that's all the time we have for the show today. We've gotten a commitment that once the report and the commission is done, we're all going to get back together because I find this whole uh, this commission's um, charter to um, be so important to our country. And thank you again for listening, and thank you to commission commissioner Mark Guerin and Max Steyer for joining us. Um, Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, and I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend and that the shutdown ends shortly. <laughs>